Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in today. We are continuing on in our series, What to Do When Everything is Terrible. And last week, um, I introduced the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a personal favorite of mine. Um, We talked about the power of Ecclesiastes coming through, how offensive it is um, to common sense and how pessimistic it seems and skeptical, but that it actually might be one of the most important books of Scripture for us in the modern era. And so last week, we talked about this concept of vapor from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Today, I'm going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter two and three, and we're going to focus on the idea of seasons, of time, which I think is so important for us, especially in this season, in this era that we're in, in the pandemic, because many of us are wrestling with what happens when our ability to control time, to control our schedule and our rights to do this, that, and the other are taken away from us. And we have to sit and wait, and things are outside of our control. So I think this is going to be really, really good for us. And this is kind of my main thesis for the day, that leaning into God's grace means that we accept seasons in life, we stop trying to control everything, and we trust God to redeem time itself. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump straight in with Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Heavenly Father, um, as always, we begin by recognizing that you are here, that you are with us. You are closer to us than our own breath. And Lord, a lot of times um, in in the supposedly normal time, in the mundane little moments of our day, maybe we forget that. But it's when things are going wrong Um, when everything seems terrible, that we can kind of snap out of that comfort and recognize we're in need of you. But the good news is that you are so close to us. Um, So Lord, I ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to alight upon each of your dear ones that are tuning in today to open our hearts um, to that reality of your closeness to us. You'd open our ears to hear you speaking in the midst of the wisdom uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes, that we would leave this place changed because we've encountered you um, in some new and fantastic way. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. 
I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize that same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will all overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Again, it's like last week where you kind of finish reading and you're like, uh, okay, can we get some like jazz hands or some confetti just to like ease the tension? But like I said last week, what Ecclesiasticus, the teacher, the, the preacher, the, the professor, what he's doing is he's taking us kind of by the scruff of the neck and he's saying, you think you know what it means to question existence? I'm going to drag you through it because a lot of times our temptation is just to kind of nod at awkward bits of scripture like this and then jump to the the positivity or the optimism, but what he's really trying to do is open up this existential angst and the things that we rush to, to try to fill the void, to make sense, to kind of retain control of our lives. And so what Ecclesiasticus is doing here in chapter two is he's playing these games to kind of show us the futility of all of these different things that you and I often try to hold on to when we're feeling that existential dread. That in the beginning, he says, you know, I just search for surface enjoyment in, in enjoying my life and drinking lots of wine. And that didn't seem to work. Um, I reached for productivity. I built amazing things and I planted gardens and, I, and, and that, that, that didn't really seem to work. Um, he became really materialistic. I had all these slaves and I had all this silver and gold and um, these flocks of animals. I had all this stuff and this stuff didn't work. And then I even looked after wisdom. And while I recognized wisdom is better than foolishness, uh, everybody ends up in the grave. So that doesn't seem to be really the thing that fills that hole. I think what is so amazing is what he's talking about here, especially the way that he ends, like the fool, the wise must die, is that all of these things that you and I reach for to try to fill the gap to make us feel better, it's because we're trying to stave off death. And that may be the capital D death, like the end of the story, the narrative, but it's also all these little deaths that you and I experience every day. The, the loss, disappointment, abandonment, rejection. If we think about it, all of these things are kind of little deaths. And that's where I think you and I really try our hardest to control time, to prevent ourselves from entering into seasons where we have to contend with the reality of death. Again, whether it's literal or metaphorical death. And I think what happens when you and I try to fail, or we try but we fail in 
staving off death is that we enter into anxiety and despair. And I'm talking about these as theological categories. There is, there is a psychological element to that that's very much about uh, you know, the chemical makeup in your brain. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm all about people working through these kinds of things with medication and whatnot. But there's a theological category here that I want to talk about with despair and anxiety. For me, the difference is this. Despair is where I'm afraid that tomorrow is going to be just like today kind of as Ecclesiasticus says, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. It rises and it sets. And tomorrow is just going to be the same as today. That's despair. And so it's kind of a living death. There's no growth. There's no progression. And so a despair is the fear that tomorrow will be just like today. Anxiety is the fear that maybe tomorrow won't come at all. Um, Paul Tillich, who was a, a 20th century German theologian, uh, wrote really powerfully about this in the 60s, that what he called the nuclear man, which is everybody that's grown up um, post-nuclear uh, bombing of Hiroshima in Japan. And that was the first time in human history that every human being became aware all of this could go away tomorrow before the advent of the nuclear bomb, that was never really a thing. It never, however big an empire got or however big wars became, it was always localized. But this was the first time that humanity was aware we could destroy ourselves and it could all go away tomorrow. And so what Tillich says is that all of us since World War II have been living in low level anxiety because we're afraid this could all disappear tomorrow. And I think that there's some truth to that, especially in 2020. We're feeling this anxiety raining down in our culture because we are so grossly aware of how much we are not in control. And I think the question that Ecclesiasticus is pointing to us to now is, well, what do we do when none of our coping mechanisms can seem to keep that existential crisis and fear of death at bay. What do we do? What happens there? And it's interesting because what I've noticed in my own life and other people that I've counseled and given spiritual direction to is that we tend to dig our heels in the deepest right before the breaking point when we're actually able to open ourselves to grace. That whatever our usual mechanisms are, it gets, we, we double down on it even harder until we finally recognize that it's not working anymore. Whether it is the compulsive pursuit of enjoyment just trying to be really busy and productive and successful in uh, amassing, you know, just like buying whatever we can to fill that void, even in seeking wisdom and knowledge. Like we try even harder and then it all begins to fall apart. And I think that the key to the Christian life is careful self-reflection. And as I've, I've recognized more and more this year, and I hope that you have as well, to be Christian, it, that's not a status. Like, uh, it's not a one and done thing. I wasn't a Christian, now I'm a Christian and everything's good. I think being a Christian itself is a process that we give ourselves over to over time. And part of being a Christian is being self-reflective, of opening our lives to the Holy Spirit to continually interpret what's going on inside of us so that we can continually give it over to God. And so, that is really indicative when we begin to watch ourselves where those coping mechanisms, the things that we're rushing to, to kind of hold off death and loss and abandonment and rejection. When we can observe ourselves, we begin to learn something about how we operate 
in a story that runs contrary to grace. Because we can't lean into grace when we latch on to compulsive, sinful behavior in order to control our worlds. I think most of the time that we sin, it's not that it's intentional. We only recognize it afterwards because it becomes compulsive. It's without thinking or without feeling that we're entering into these kinds of behaviors, trying to protect ourselves or control the world around us. But what happens then is that we're not open to the move of God in our lives. Um, I've, many spiritual leaders uh, now have said sin is when we overdo our strengths. And I actually found that really compelling. That each of us, we have a gift in our personality, a way that we are in the world that contributes well to the work that God's doing. But when we feel anxiety or despair, we actually overplay our hand. And those things that become, that were our gifts to the world actually become our greatest liabilities because we leave God behind. But what happens when we enter into that compulsive behavior where we overdo our strengths is that we begin to tell ourselves a story that runs story contrary to the story of grace, that we take it upon ourselves to save ourselves and to save other people. And the compulsivity comes without that lack of self-reflection. So we begin to allow our ignorant hearts and our minds and our guts to lead us instead of trusting God. And this was recognized very early on in the Christian church in the fourth century, these, these desert fathers, these men and women who would go out into the desert to, to, to be with God and to intercede on behalf of the world, came to recognize what they called the seven deadly sins um, that sort of developed kind of through the Middle Ages and it would be very, uh, many of you would be aware of those things nowadays. Um, but even some, some more modern teachers have kind of added two on there so we get these nine deadly sins. And I think these are the kind of compulsive behaviors where we overdo our strengths in order to try to control time to protect ourselves from loss, abandonment, death, rejection, and so on. And so what I want to do is just kind of talk through those nine deadly sins and, and what happens when they take over our actions. So for some of us, when it comes to that feeling of being overwhelmed, that existential crisis, we're really, we're really aggressive with it. Where we become all about action and we leave thinking and feeling behind. And we just compulsively just start to do without uh, reflection. And so the first of these sins that we find in this category is gluttony. Now, gluttony, I think, comes from this place of the gift of joy, which is enjoying the fullness of life, but where we actually place our value in the activity itself rather than it being a byproduct of being found in God. And so gluttony can literally mean, you know, gobbling up food. That's oftentimes what we think of. It could be um, drinking too much. But I think an even wider sense of gluttony is kind of gobbling up experiences and stimulation in order to protect ourselves from feeling dark emotions. Because a person who struggles with gluttony is saying, no, 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 I get to craft my own reality. I get to decide what what I allow in and what I don't. It's a very aggressive maneuver. The second is lust. Um, a lot of times we think of lust in terms of uh, uh, the sexual connotations of it, which I think is really true and valid, and we need to recognize that. But really, what lust is, it's kind of like it's remorselessness, where we objectify other people um, and then plow over them with our own agendas. That's what lust really means. And so we find this wonderful quality of passion 
and, and drive, but when you lose sensitivity uh, and we enter into compulsive behavior, that lust becomes a remorseless intensity where we end up hurting people. We just have this need to overcome obstacles and break down barriers and we actually lose the place of compassion. The third is deceit. And this is deceit of other people, but it's also deceit of ourselves. And I think the beautiful gift where we are to be able to give vision and to inspire ourselves and other people to continue moving down the road, it's when deceit is when we habitually try to please other people by living out their version of what we are supposed to be. Uh, and, and when we enter into deceit, we become these constant shapeshifters where we're just different things to different people at different times. And before long, not only do we lose our true selves, but we actually start to believe the lies that we tell ourselves about who we really are. So those are kind of the three aggressive deadly sins. The next we might call dependent deadly sins, where we stop allowing God to define us and instead we look to everybody else around us, like our social structures, in order to make us feel safe or determine who we really are. So the first of the, these sins is traditionally called anger, but it's a very specific form of anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin, but uncontrolled or unmediated anger, which we might call wrath or rage or resentment. That's actually what I'm talking about. And this is when you have a really key desire for justice to see the world put to right, but you become so obsessive about that need that justice just turns into wrath or resentment. And you begin to obsess over all the little imperfections that you see everywhere. You become impatient. You become cruel to other people. And you kind of enter into this incessant critical voice that can't see any goodness in the world. That's what happens to us when anger takes over and becomes resentment. The next one is pride, um, that I think, you know, we are all blessed with this gift of serving other people. But when we begin to find our source in, in what we have to offer others and how well we're to do that, that's where we find the spiritual uh, sin of pride. And what happens when that compulsive behavior takes over? A prideful person doesn't stop to ask, what is actually mine to do? But they go around doing things for other people because they're trying to protect themselves from recognizing, I'm the one who's needy. I'm the one who's weak, who needs help. And what happens when we're in that kind of prideful state is that we actually give power over to other people to determine who we really are because we really become, we, we base our value in what we're able to contribute rather than who we are in Jesus. And the third one here is fear, fear specifically as anxiety. And what happens when we give ourselves over to compulsive anxiety is that we lose trust in anyone or anything. We're so overwhelmed by the fact that anything could take us over at any point that we begin to retreat and we become very paranoid of other people and especially of God. And where that good, healthy self-reflection actually becomes self-doubt. And, and we begin to doubt ourselves, we doubt other people, and we doubt God himself. The three final sins, we might say, are sins of withdrawing. And this is when we're so overwhelmed, we're so uh, avoidant of, of death and loss and so on, that we actually pull away and we retreat into our heart and mind, but in that place, we're not able to really turn around to right action. So the first one is, is envy. 
And I've, I've heard it spoken of like this. I really like this, that jealousy is when I uh, am obsessed with what other people are. <laughs> Shoot, what is it? Uh, jealousy is when I'm afraid that people are going to take what I have. Envy is where I see that other people have something that I don't. Okay, so that's the difference. I'm, when I'm jealous, I'm, I'm holding on tightly to what I have because I'm afraid people are going to try to take it from me. But when I'm envious, I see what others have and I assume they have it and I don't have it. And I think that the core of the, the deadly sin of envy, there is a tenderness and an openness of heart to the world. But when we become overwhelmed, we enter into envy where it becomes all about self-preservation. Where we're constantly in this push-pull with other people because we're afraid to give ourselves over to other people means um, that we're going to lose whatever sense of uniqueness we might have. The next one is, this is a word we don't use very much today, avarice, or as Daniel and I were looking up earlier, cupidity, which is a very intriguing word. And avarice kind of means greed, um, but it's a very specific form of greed. It's like um, hoarding or being Stingy, like holding tightly to the stuff that I have, thinking that that's going to protect me. And so where we move from being people who offer wisdom and knowledge to the world in a very generous way, when avarice takes over, we become stingy with our time, with our resources, because we're afraid that people are going to take what we've got and then we're not going to be safe. And so that's that kind of scarcity mentality that stirs up greed. I need to gobble up what I can in order to protect myself because there's not enough to go around. And then the final one is sloth. And this is, this is where I live. Um, I think this is where Marshall lives. He's recording too. We, we've talked about this before. <laughs> um, Peace is a wonderful quality of God that's reflected through his people. Um, being that sense of togetherness and uh, being able to transcend circumstances to really trust God. But what happens sometimes with sloth is that there's like a, it's almost like a false sense of peace. And there's a proverb that says, um, the slothful man, like a door in his hinges, turns over in his bed. And I've been in that place a lot of times where rather than having to deal with the world, with the chaos in my own life, I just kind of, like a door in its hinges, just want to kind of curl over in my bed and just kind of avoid it and hope it all goes away. And this is something that I'm working through a lot of my own life right now. How do I know when I'm trusting God and when I'm just being really passive? But when we enter into sloth, we kind of go along to get along. Um, we might enter into some, some busyness or activity, but we're just avoiding the real things that we're called to do, the sense of right action. So, gluttony, lust, deceit, anger, pride, fear, envy, avarice, and sloth. These are the deadly sins. This is what happens when we overdo our strengths to try to control time, to control the narrative, to protect ourselves from having to deal with loss and pain of life. But when we enter into that kind of sinful behavior, we close ourselves off to God's story of grace, where we learn how to genuinely trust him. Because leaning into grace means that we learn how to let go and to allow seasons to pass without the need to control our calendars and everything that's going on around us. 
And this is what we begin to find as we move into Ecclesiastes chapter three, that Ecclesiasticus is making this turn. He's saying, here's the futility of all the things that we try to do to protect ourselves, define ourselves, keep ourselves safe. And this is the reality of how the universe works. So this is Ephesians chapter three, verses one to 14. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I love this recognition from Ecclesiasticus that there are seasons for these, these things that we would assume are opposing forces that we constantly feel like we're in between. We've got to choose which one are we going to do. And again, this is kind of the narrative that we import from our surrounding society that you've got to make life what it is and you have this will and you've got to strive and you've got to make these decisions. And what, he's, what Ecclesiasticus is really saying is, no, there are seasons where it's going to look like this and there are seasons where it's going to look like that. And the challenge is then, how do I become sensitive to the season that I'm in to receive whatever is happening there and to learn how to ask the right questions of God? I think this is what the pandemic has been for all of us. If we slow down and accept the reality of what's going on in the world today and how it has affected us to begin to open our stories to God rather than trying to control the narrative to pretend like nothing's happening, to tell ourselves stories. I even recognized the other day, I keep thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, January 1st, 2021 is gonna be so better. I'm gonna be so glad to get out of, Gen of, of 2020. And it's like, no, it'll be exactly the same because that's just an arbitrary date on a calendar that we created. And real life doesn't operate like that. And it's that compulsive need that I have and you have to continually control the narrative, try to change our fate, try to be the masters of our own destiny. When all this time, perhaps God is saying, I need you to learn how to let go, to allow seasons to come and go, but to ask what I'm doing in the midst of each one. And I think that's so beautifully demonstrated in this passage, this one little line, that says he has made everything beautiful in its time. <clears throat> he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
He has set eternity in the human heart, but we can't fathom that. And what that says to me, that it's not about controlling this, we can't fathom it. Like we can't understand it, we can't measure it, we can't explain it, we can't write a book about it, we can't make a podcast about it. We can only abide in eternity that's been set in our hearts. It's something that we have to give ourselves over to. It's not something that we can control and, and market and, and sell to other people as the be all end all answer. And I love that Ecclesiasticus just leaves this little window open for truth in the midst of all of the supposedly meaningless things to say eternity is this present reality that you can learn how to give yourself over into if you allow it, that you can transcend your circumstances and this, this illusion you have of having to choose this life or that life and all the pressure that comes from needing to make something of yourself. And I think that window he opens, opens us up to receive the good news of the gospel. That King Jesus takes hold of time itself and redeems it, inviting us to relax into his eternal presence. I've talked about this idea a lot in our community that God is the God of history who redeems time. Not because he changes the events, but he changes the outcomes of those events. And that's true of our past when we open our stories up to allow God to move, but it's also true of what's happening in this present moment. That what Jesus is inviting us to is what we would call detachment, which means that we do not hold so tightly to present circumstances in order to find ourselves or make ourselves feel safe or to stave off death, but we attach ourselves to him and we're not so dictated by the circumstances around us. This is beautifully demonstrated in a story from the Gospels where this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You know, this kind of, this thing being set in the, in the eternity being in the human heart. And Jesus says, well, you know, honor your father and mother and keep the commandments. He says, oh, I've done all of these things. Like, I, you know, I did the right things. I took control of my life and I ran the program and I'm doing it great. And then Jesus, because he knows this man's heart, he says, I want you to go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And it says that this rich young ruler walked away because he couldn't comprehend what Jesus was asking of him. Because this rich young ruler, like many of you, like me, he, he found his value keeps protecting himself from the reality of loss and death in his stuff, in his bank account, in his 401k, in his stocks. That's where he was actually finding his value. He was, he was suffering from an unhealthy attachment to the material uh, goods that he had stored up for himself. And I think that the, the sad thing about this story is that he was so unhealthily attached to those things that he probably couldn't even hear the second half. He all he heard was Jesus saying, let go, but he didn't hear the follow me. That maybe by following Jesus, by resting in Jesus's eternal presence, he would find the confidence that he was looking for all along. I think when we can lean into that kind of reality, the temporary moments of life actually become a gift. These little moments of life, like the, what Ecclesiasticus is saying, like 
You know, we find satisfaction in our toil and we find joy and eat and drink, not because we're looking to those things as the source of our identity, but because they become the natural expression of who we are in Christ. I think this is what we find ultimately in the words of Jesus himself. You know, when we're doing Ecclesiastes, we can't just let it sit there as an entity into itself, but we have to read that scripture through Jesus because Jesus has authority over all scripture. And so this is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six. I'm gonna read verses 25 to 34. And I think this is Jesus having a conversation with Ecclesiasticus and by extension, you and I. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not Worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, the two major commands that we find in the Bible time and time again when God meets humanity is number one, do not be afraid, and number two, do not worry. And this isn't a suggestion from Jesus. This is a, this is a command. This is something that we are called to really lean into. Don't worry. Stop worrying about tomorrow. And Jesus is saying, just consider all of these other elements These things that, yes, they're temporary. Yes, they're vapor. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. These moment-to-moment realities. But just consider where it is that you truly find your confidence. You see, this this isn't religious escapism. Jesus does not negate the troubles of life. He even says tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But what he's doing is he's challenging you and I to transcend the troubles of tomorrow, the fear and anxiety and despair that we might be wallowing in. And what he's inviting us to is what we might call a detached activism. Being, Being practicing detachment doesn't mean that we just begin to twiddle our fingers for eternity and just kind of allow everything to happen. This isn't this isn't some sort of stoic escapism or giving ourselves over to fate. We're still active, we're still pursuing justice, we're still doing what matters, but we're not so consumed by the moment that we lose sight of who we truly are in Jesus. Friends, life is so fleeting, it's so temporary. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. 
But that doesn't mean that it's not precious. Your life is incredibly precious. Do you really want to waste it on trying to control time, on trying to control the narrative, of trying to control other people, of trying to control yourself? Or will you enter into that place of relaxing into the eternal presence of Jesus and letting go and trusting him and surrendering your will to his? There's a passage written by St. Teresa of Avila, which is in Spain. She was a Carmelite nun who was well known for her mystical connection with God. Um, She really wowed uh, the Christian church of her day. And I have this written on a a, uh, chalkboard in my house and I try to see it every day because again, almost like Ecclesiastes, it feels so offensive that I know there's gotta be something that's more true about it than what I can read on the surface. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, the words of St. Teresa of Avila, and I'm going to read it three times slowly as a meditation for all of us. And as I'm reading it, I want you just to have a posture of openness before the Lord that he would begin to show you in your reaction to what she says where your confidence might lie, where you're still trying to control time, to control the narrative, or to avoid the inevitable. And just allow that posture to be your prayer. So I'm going to pray these words from Teresa of Avila, and then we'll worship. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.